Linda Newbury always wanted to be a writer and had her first novel published in 1988 while still working as a secondary school teacher. She writes for a variety of children's age groups and has twice been shortlisted for the Carnegie Medal, for The Shell House and Sisterland, and in 2006 won the Costa Children's Book Award for her novel Set in Stone. Her latest book, entitled This Book is Cruelty Free, Animals and Us, will be published later this month and Linda joined Nikki Gamble in the reading corner to tell us more about it. I think it's true to say that this book is cruelty-free, documents a personal journey as well as something for all of us to consider. And I wanted to begin, if you could take us through how that journey started, because obviously you've come to a very strong position now in this book, But it wasn't always like that. So there must have been stages along the way. And I'm wondering how that journey played out for you and how you got to this point. Well, I'd always viewed myself as an animal lover from a child. And um, it it struck me as incongruous to claim to love animals, but still eat them. And uh, it wasn't until my student days, actually, that, that I became vegetarian. And I've always... I've always done quite a bit of animal campaigning, campaigning against blood sports and factory farming and so on. So that's been part of my life, really, since early adulthood. In fact, my first publication, a young adult novel, was about a girl who gets involved in an animal rights group. And as time has gone on, I've been doing more and more protesting and campaigning. And four years ago, I became vegan. And having written my first novel with a main character who was an animal rights campaigner, I'd, it's sort of, the, the issue has sort of been in the background of, of several other books since. But I began to think, well, it really should be well to the fore in whatever I write next. And so I was thinking of fiction to start with. But then my agent asked me if I'd ever thought of writing nonfiction. And I was surprised I hadn't. And I was busy with fiction at that time, so I I didn't immediately take it up. But then suddenly I had the idea of writing this sort of guide to compassionate living. I thought there was so much that I could bring in about our daily lives, the choices we make, the things we buy, the things we choose not to buy, the things we eat, keeping of pets, all the topics in the book. There was so much that I could cover And I thought it was so important to reach young readers in this way. So one of the things that I'd like to ask you is about the young readers themselves, because you're writing this book for teenagers, maybe early teenagers upwards, and children and young people in school don't have complete control over their lives, what they eat, what they wear. So... I wondered whether you had that in mind as you were writing and how it influenced the way that you wrote the book. Of course, because I'm writing for young readers, I don't take the line, you know, you must be vegan starting tomorrow. What I talk about is small steps that you can take. For instance, most young people are not preparing meals or doing the shopping, but they could ask if the family could have one meat-free day a week, for instance, or they could ask... If you're buying a pizza, could we have a a vegetable pizza rather than a meat-based one? At schools, they can certainly 
ask for vegetarian choices. In fact, there's a campaign going on at the moment to ask councils to commit to two meat-free days a week in schools. And that would have all kinds of benefits. It provides a healthy diet, it saves money, it reduces the carbon emissions and so on. So yeah, um, with the aspect of aiming at young people, I'm asking them to, to think about what they want to buy and eat and wear and how they can take small steps. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. I think that's really important. So I want young people to, to sort of take that bit of initiative if, if they care about this and if they want to take steps themselves to influence the adults around them. And we have seen, of course, in recent years, so many um, instances where young people are activists and yes. are making their voices heard so it's not an impossibility definitely not no I mean look how schools have taken up the climate strikes the issue of meat eating is tied up with the climate emergency and carbon emissions and the the fact that that intensive factory farming is a major contributor to carbon emissions so that it's awareness has spread through the climate emergency you know even if you leave out the issue of animal cruelty there are powerful reasons yeah. I think one of the things that I found so convincing um, in your book was the interconnectedness of mm. all of those concerns. Yeah. Also, on a personal level, the moral question of eating meat, I completely understood the cruelty, the methodology, the harm to the planet. But in terms of the moral argument, you know, you talk about predators later in the book. Mm. Animals eat animals, and it's sort mm. of part of the mm. cycle of life to some extent. So on that side, while I'm cheering you on completely, I wasn't entirely won over by all of the kind of moral arguments, but you got me completely on all the facts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as a vegetarian and a vegan, I've many times been asked why I don't eat meat. But how often are meat eaters asked why they do eat it? And I think we need to turn that around. And I think in future, that will be the way it will go. This is a book that has a very strong factual basis, but it's also a personal account and it's subjective. And I think that's the strength of the book. But one of the things that you want to do is to change the hearts and minds of people who don't think like you. Was this part of your thinking as well? How do I change people's minds without just reinforcing them into their current positions? In a way, I resist the idea that this is a book for animal lovers because I think I I would like it to be a book for everyone because whether or not you actually have anything to do with animals, we all affect animals in the choices we make and the the way we live. So Mm -hmm. it's it's a, a simple matter of ethics can't simply dismiss animals as, as you know the commercial world does as products as if they're simply objects as if they're items for us to to use as we wish and discard as we wish it's a, a an ethical matter so it's a huge issue really as I see it mm. so your <laughs> tools of persuasion were you kind of decentering to the point of view of those other people who might think differently and going through what might be those tools to encourage them to think differently? Well, I suppose so. It's the interconnectedness of things, isn't it? It's the 
I mean, we're more aware than ever of the climate emergency and the fact that we simply cannot assume that we go on living as we are and we expect somehow the climate emergency, the climate crisis to be solved. It won't. Yes, big institutions have to change. Big corporations have to change. Also, we have to we have to make a shift in what we regard as normal. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's the line I, that I'm trying to take here. There are things that we have been, you know, encouraged to regard as normal and acceptable, but we can't go on thinking like that if the planet is to survive. It's as it's mm-hmm. as fundamental as that. What was the thing that you wrote about that I've not heard of today? Earth Overshoot Day is the the day each year by which the Earth has used up all the resources it can provide in that year. And so from then on, it's sort of, we're in debt. We're using up more than the planet can produce. And last year, as I mentioned in the book, it was August. It was in August. It was a bit later than usual because of the pandemic. There weren't as many flights, and so that cut down on carbon emissions quite significantly. But this year, people have begun flying again, and Earth Overshoot Day is July the 29th. So that means that for the remaining five months of the year, we're using up more than the Earth can sustain. And it's even worse than that, because if you go to the website, it's organised by Global Footprint Network, and they show the dates for individual countries. So if every country lived like Qatar, then Earth Overshoot Day would be in February. We're not that much better. We've got no reason to feel smug in the UK because if everybody lived as we do in the UK, Earth Overshoot Day would be on May the 19th. So it's deeply worrying. And they they um, suggest remedies. They look at various aspects of how we live. They look at energy, food, population, how we treat nature, how cities are organised. And for each one of those, they suggest solutions. And they have a, a campaign with a hashtag, move the date. It would be great if every school knew about that particular organisation. I was, you know, I was really struck that I hadn't heard of it before. Yeah. it's a very wide-ranging book um you know you you talk about beauty fashion things that mean you know are quite close to young people's hearts or ways of living um and then you talk about zoos and it's the one thing that I've vacillated over the years I haven't been to a zoo for many many years but I did go to London Zoo again last year and of course there have been lots of changes but the thing that's gone over in my head is whether they're a good thing or not. And you really helped me to see some clarity through your case studies, your four different animals. Oh, thank you. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about that. Yes, well, obviously there are some appalling zoos around the world. There are animals kept in heart-rending conditions, barren cages and inadequate food and inadequate space and and all of those things Um, and in fact it was when I started writing the book it was the issue on which I was the most ambivalent I think you know and and certainly there are some animal campaigners who, who would say that no animal should ever be kept in a zoo but during my research I did shift a, a bit on that there are appalling zoos and there are very good zoos 
And um, in the book, I, I give examples of um, animals that have been successfully reintroduced to the wild after becoming extinct in the wild. We tend to think of the big um, iconic animals, don't we, like the polar bears and the elephants and so on. But there's a lot of great work going on with amphibians and reptiles and insects, and they don't make headlines, so nobody knows, knows about it. But one, one important thing, I think, is that um, a number of animals each year are rescued from dreadful zoos or from traveling circuses from tourist attractions and so on. And there are zoos that specialize in, in rehoming and rehabilitating them, like the Isle of Wight Zoo, for instance. Well, if there were no zoos, there would be nowhere for those animals to go and they would just have to have to be killed. And the other thing is that, um, or another thing, is that because there are zoos, a whole body of knowledge is built up about various creatures and the veterinary knowledge as well um, is built up and shared around the world. And I think that has to be to the benefit of animals. But every good zoo has a really good conservation policy and, and does work for wild animals, not just for captive animals. There are some things that are just tourist attractions that I wouldn't even class as zoos, things like dolphinariums and uh, you know, orcas and, and uh, cetaceans, other cetaceans are kept in captivity and made to perform. And I don't even class those as zoos and, and I'm completely against those. You talk about four different animals and some that can actually thrive and, you know, with breeding programs. And there, then there are animals that seem to, under no circumstances, like the elephant, yes. because of its huge roaming mm. needs, there is no zoo that can give an adequate home to an elephant. I mean, it's, I guess, okay in a safari park. Policy is changing all the time on that. and. Um, the RSPCA now says that elephants should not be kept in captivity in zoos. Mm. And, and so for, for um, zoos who are going along with that, they won't breed anymore. They won't breed them in captivity. And polar bears, again, um, polar bears are probably possibly the least suited of any animal to be kept in captivity. And they should not be bred in captivity and they can't be rehabilitated to the wild. Uh, so if a polar bear is in a zoo, it's got to stay there. Another chapter that it comes at the end of the book, and I was cheering from the sidelines because you're talking about the creepy crawlies. We're not so good with the not-so-pretty animals, are we? That's right. And you've got a chapter that talks a lot about their importance. Because um, insects and uh, invertebrates are crucial parts of our ecosystems. We, we couldn't survive without them. And it's such a shame when people sort of dismiss them as, as bugs. And one thing that infuriates me is then I go into, I go into the supermarket and um, look at the garden section shelves and they've got something called bug kill. Well, I hate the lumping together of you know, insect life as bugs. It's, it's uh, you know, what do they mean by bugs? Do they mean ladybirds, lacewing flies, dragonflies? And, and it perpetuates the idea that all insect life is somehow dirty and germ-ridden and it's got to be exterminated. And um, we, we need to get over that and, and appreciate insect life and its importance. 
it's interesting, isn't it? Because the World Wildlife Fund has the panda as its emblem. And I'm sure for one minute you don't want to weigh up the worth of one animal against another, but you do talk about uh, comparing these two. Yes, because Sarah Johnson, a researcher in environmental science, uh, wrote an article suggesting that earthworms are more important than giant pandas. And of course, it would be sad and terrible if the giant panda became extinct. It's an iconic species. In fact, the pandas are not going to go extinct because there are intensive breeding programs for them in China and and special panda parks and so on where they're bred. But um, the panda is is not actually crucial to its ecosystem because they they live solitary lives. They roam widely in forests. They eat bamboo. And as we all know, they mate very infrequently. So if the giant panda did become extinct, and I hope it won't, it wouldn't really affect that ecosystem. But if earthworms became extinct, then our gardening, our farming, our horticulture, agriculture would all be affected because earthworms are so valuable to soil health. They digest waste matter, they recycle it, they contribute to the health of the soil. Um, Without worms, our soil would be a lot less healthy and we wouldn't be able to grow crops in the way that we do. Now, I agree with you with just about everything, but the one thing, and I say this with the greatest admiration and respect, the one thing you lost me on was to do with animal phobia. I didn't think you were very sympathetic to us who are really genuinely phobic of spiders. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got a, a couple of friends who, who are like that. And um, a couple of times I've been in a room where they've suddenly gone, oh, no, a spider. And I've, uh, I've had to go and pick it up and, and remove it from the room. But being afraid of spiders is one thing. But I hope you don't kill them, Nikki. I don't. No, good. <laughs> Could you bring yourself to get a glass and a piece of paper and trap the spider under the I glass? Couldn't, I couldn't. I personally outside? couldn't do that. But I have got one of those things that will use air to pull it in. And you can then take it outside from arm's length. Is that OK? I've never heard of them. I They're supposed them to do it without I... harming the yeah. creature. I've done it with wasps as well. So it almost uses yeah. like a suction vacuum thing. Oh, well, I've not heard of them, but I shall go and look them up. So as we said, there's a it's very wide ranging, um, your book. Did you know all of this before you started writing or did you have to do quite a lot of research? I knew enough to know what I was going to basically say. But I did do a lot of research, especially well about the zoos and also about the exotic pets and how how cruelty can result because people sometimes buy them without adequate preparation or knowledge. Or there may be a trend in a particular kind of creature like a turtle or a bearded dragon and people go and get them and then tire of them and, and want to get rid of them. Obviously, it's perfectly possible to own those creatures in responsible ways, and I'm sure a lot of people do and take every care of them. But I know that the RSPCA has a great many cases of of people just wanting to give them their bearded dragon or whatever because they found that it was too complicated or too time-consuming to look after. Mm -hmm. So I I read a lot about exotic pets and, and also the trade in exotic animals which is heartrending really there were awful things that I thought were 
too upsetting to put in the book. So I didn't write about all the horrific conditions, but I did sort of warn people against buying exotic animals unless you're quite sure that they've been bred responsibly and that they that you're not contributing to the trafficking mm-hmm. of um, wild creatures or the capturing of them in the wild. I mean, that's a great strength in your book is that you signpost lots of places where you can find out because it's a minefield. Yeah. And you know that companies use language to make you think they're doing the right thing. Yes. And they're often not. So you have to be really precise and know what you're looking for, know the symbols. And you give quite a few good websites that people can go to for information, fashion, food, etc. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was a that was a heartening thing actually, because d- during my research, I I mean, obviously, I knew a lot of the main organisations, but I came across so many more, and there are so many people, teams of people who are absolutely dedicated to whether it's practical work in the field or providing information or advice, you know, who, who, who are dedicated to helping us all to make better choices and to improve conditions for animals. I do want to ask you whether, I mean, that sounds like a really positive thing. I wonder whether since writing the book, whether there's any evidence that things are moving in the right direction. Are we going forwards? Oh, gosh. There have certainly been some positive changes since I finished writing the book. Um, I've I've heard of several new developments that are very good for animals. It's easy. I'll come back to those in a minute. It's easy. It's so easy to feel overwhelmed by the scale of cruelty. And because I follow many organisations and I'm always signing petitions and so on, I get in my inbox every single day, I get information and things asking me for money or asking me to to take action and and some days I honestly feel like despairing because I think there's so much cruelty around the world such an enormous scale how can we ever make any progress but on the, the positive side there are new developments all the time and since since I finished working on the book between then and publication there have been several good things. One is that the EU has voted to ban cages for animals like chickens, turkeys, rabbits and geese and farrowing pigs. And that's a a great development. Compassion and World Farming have campaigned about that. And so that's a great success. Um, Just yesterday, I heard that a fashion brand, it, it it wasn't a name that I'd heard of, but it supplies sort of four well-known fashion brands has vowed not to use reptiles and snakes skins. Mm. Another one was that penalties for animal cruelty have just been raised. And that's another thing that the RSPCA and other organisations have been campaigning about because the maximum penalty for animal cruelty used to be six months, which is pathetic. Now it's gone up to five years, which is still not enough, but that's, a, that's enough to be a lot more of a deterrent. And so all three of those things have come about through people campaigning, through the power of our voices and our buying decisions. That's brilliant. Yeah. And I would say if there's one thing that comes through very strongly in your book is that ignorance is not acceptable. We all have a responsibility, no matter where we end up on, you know, in our decision-making process, 
we all have a responsibility to find out the facts and to inform ourselves. And that is really quite a strong thread through the book, I think. Well, if you start to be aware, then it sort of colours your whole attitude towards things. Like um, one of the, the first chapters in the book is about buying cosmetics. And I don't just mean makeup and shampoo, deodorant, you know, the things that we all buy. And a lot of people probably never give a thought to animals. It's just there in the shops or you see an advert or somebody recommends it and you go and buy it. But, you know, that is a change everybody can easily make, isn't it? Very few people are going to say they actually want their cosmetics to be tested on animals. It's just that most people haven't thought about it. But if you do think about it, then it's a simple check. You look at the packaging. If you see the leaping bunny or nature watch or a vegan symbol, then that tells you that it meets certain standards. And it's not difficult. It's not difficult to do that. So it's just a question of being aware. And once you are aware, then that sort of colours your whole approach. Because for me now, that's automatic. Linda, you've done such a great job at raising our awareness. And I thank you so much for taking some time to come and talk to me in the reading corner today. Thank you for your, your comments. Thank you. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.